Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Cinematic Schematic, the official podcast of thecinematropolis.com, your home to thoughtful conversations on film. Today, we will continue our special interview series, Three Films That Got You Through the 2020 Pandemic. In this series, I will be speaking with a wide variety of friends, colleagues, and professionals working in the film industry, largely in my backyard of Oklahoma, and I'll be talking with each guest about how the pandemic has impacted their line of work before talking about the three films that helped them get through it all. Today's special guest is Sterling Harjo, a native filmmaker, artist, and podcaster who recently made headlines when his FX series Reservation Dogs was greenlit for a full season by Disney. I'll be talking with Sterling about how the shutdown of Hollywood impacted his creative process and the production of his new series. We'll also discuss his approach to telling Native stories before getting his three selections for films that got him through the 2020 pandemic. If you enjoyed today's interview with Sterling, please consider leaving us a rating, review, and a follow or subscribe on your preferred podcast app. It's the most impactful way you can support this show at this time. Now, if you're out there listening and you're saying, hey, I've got three different films that got me through the pandemic, I hope you'll consider submitting to this special series by emailing us your three films at thecinematropolis at gmail.com or by sharing your picks by following us on Twitter at The Cinematrop or on Facebook on facebook.com forward slash The Cinematropolis. Now, before we jump into the interview, let's take a look at Sterling's background. Sterling Harjo is a member of the Seminole Nation and has a Muscogee heritage. He was raised in Holdenville, Oklahoma, and attended the University of Oklahoma, where he studied art and film. After receiving a fellowship from the Sundance Institute in 2004, his short film, Goodnight Irene, premiered at the 2005 Sundance Film Festival and received a special jury award at the Aspen Short Fest. Sterling has directed shorts, feature films, and documentaries, including Four Sheets to the Wind, Barking Water, Miko, and most recently, Love and Fury. Now, Love and Fury, if you're a longtime listener or you follow us on the Cinematropolis, this one might ring a bell. As part of the Cinematropolis coverage of the Dead Center 2020 Virtual Film Festival, Joe Light wrote that in his second documentary feature, Love and Fury, Sterling Harjo captures the versatility and passion in the world of contemporary indigenous art. Somehow, it all manages to feel like an ongoing conversation about art and self. Joe's full review of Love and Fury will be linked in the show notes for those of you who are interested in checking that out. Stone Harjo was most recently appointed to the Academy of Motion Picture Arts and Sciences and is writing and producing Reservation Dogs with his producing partner Taika Watiti, who is the Academy Award-winning writer and director of Jojo Rabbit, Thor Ragnarok, and What We Do in the Shadows. And Reservation Dogs is described as a half-hour comedy series that will follow four Native American teenagers in rural Oklahoma who spend their days committing crime and fighting it. So, in short, I think Sterling is, is certainly one of Oklahoma's finest filmmakers and one that you need to be watching for in the months and years ahead as he does uh, a number of really exciting and wonderful things uh, in the realm of uh, film and television. But you don't have to take my word for it. Let's go ahead and hear from the man himself as he shares the three films that got him through the pandemic in 2020. <laughs> Well, 
I'm so excited to be joined by another very special guest. We are talking about three films that got us through the, the 2020 pandemic. And I'm so thrilled to be joined by Sterling Harjo, the filmmaker, artist, and podcaster. Sterling, welcome to the Cinematic Schematic. Thanks for having me. Uh, it's It has been a long year. <laughs> yeah. Well, uh, we, we made it through uh, 2020. And it was quite the year. Uh, how are you doing today, though? I'm doing good. It's been a really busy year for me. So luckily, I'm a writer as well. Because of that, I was able to do a lot of work during this year from home. And it helped me actually get caught up on a lot of projects that I had going. And um, so, yeah, I spent a lot of the year writing. And then I actually spent part of the year shooting a pilot for a show. Um, which was, you know, crazy and I'm grateful for it and all of that, but a pretty crazy year actually. It's really exciting to hear that you were able to keep the creative wheels turning through the year. One thing I just wanted to note here before we really get into it, you've been known for uh, making films that spotlight uh, indigenous people or native uh, people here in America for many, many years. Um, I caught uh, Love and Fury uh, as part of the Dead Center 2020 Film Festival last year. Really enjoyed it. So if you could just tell us a little bit about why do you think it's so important that there are native stories being told, especially as we think about this through the lens of a post-pandemic world? I don't know because it's so personal to me. You know, I mean, I grew up knowing that I was a native person and I didn't approach filmmaking because I thought it was important to tell native film or make native films. That was something that I feel like kind of came later. When I first wanted to do this, I just wanted to be an artist. I wanted to make films. I started noticing that I had a talent for writing, things like that. In two ways, it became kind of known to me that I was doing something that hadn't really been done because, you know, I, when I first, was, first started writing scripts, I was like, oh, like I can write stories about where I'm from and no one's ever heard of this place. No one's ever heard of a Muscogee Creek Seminole perspective from small town Oklahoma. So right off the top, I had an edge on uh, storytelling because I could tell people I could tell stories that no one had ever heard before. So that was exciting to me. Um, but then also, as you start making films and you start getting feedback from others, then it becomes more apparent how sort of starved people are for stories, indigenous stories, and and not just stories, but like truthful representations and. You know, I mean, Native people have been a part of cinema since its beginnings, and we've never really had opportunities to tell our own stories and to tell them with accuracy um, for a long time. I mean, we were the we were the zombies of the first half of cinema. You know, we were Walking Dead. We were Evil Dead. We were in the Western. We were the sort of other that was coming to destroy your way of life. We represented this other thing, which is like this sort of like wild sort of Western landscape that needed to be tamed. Very great storytelling technique. But, uh, you know, as far as like, I hate calling it good representation, but accurate representation, as far as that goes, it wasn't great. You know, I remember being a kid and, um, watching westerns and just being excited that there was a native on tv just to be excited that there was a sort of like uh acknowledgement that the people that you're from and that you've always known you're from are being represented in some way even if that way was bad it was still 
uh, exciting as a kid. I'm just curious, like, do you feel like that's shifting or do you feel like you've been able to be a, a really formative part of that conversation and really shifting exactly how Native people are represented? Yeah, it's definitely shifting. I mean, I feel like we're kind of in the middle of changing it right now. And these things happen in a very slow, it's like, you know, uh, turning a steamboat or whatever. It's like, um, they happen very slowly. I'm 41 right now. I've been making films and doing this business since I was 23. Um, I went to the Sundance labs around the age of 23 and, you know, there was no overnight anything. I've like made films for low budget and, you know, scraped to buy for years, trying to figure out a way to do it and try to make, figure out a way to make a living at it. So like, it was just in me and I knew that I was going to do this and it would have been really easy to stop a lot of times, but you know, I just went full on and there was no stopping. And I, you know, no matter what, I was going to see it through. It's, it paid off, you know, I mean, it, now I make a living doing this, you know, which, um, I make a fine living doing this. And it's like, I never, you know, I was reading an interview that I did about four years ago, maybe four and a half, five years ago. And I was, it was after Miko and um, it was like me saying, I mean, I was like desperately trying to figure out like how I'm going to make a living doing this. It's like, I don't know what I'm going to do, you know, um, before things kind of turned around, which is basically the turning point for me was when I um, got into TV. It was just a different landscape. It wasn't hard to make like feature film is still sort of hard to, unless you have Will Smith in the film, it's still hard to get a budget. It's still hard to get people to notice your scripts. It's still a tough road with TV. It's totally different. You don't have to have recognizable names. You can have people of color. They, they are looking for diversity. They are looking for different stories. Um, that was not the case when I was younger. You know, that was not the case in feature films where you would get a lot of people telling you like, we'd fund your film if we could put Philip Seymour Hoffman on the poster. You know, those were like, these are quotes that I got. Never mind that the film had no part for him in it, but so things changed. And so, you know, I don't know, I stuck it out and, you know, it's changed in the last few years. So you referenced your creative process. You've been able to continue to write through the pandemic. Can you tell us a little bit about the, your creative process, you know, developing a story maybe pre-pandemic and then com contrast that with what you're seeing now that we're sort of on the, hopefully the tail end of the, the pandemic? You know, I think for me, it's about processes changed. Um, and it's only because I've been able to hone a process, you know, like, because I'm writing so much during the pandemic and because I've had so much time, I've been able to, you know, just like uh, work on a process more. So it's like, you know, I mean, I ran a writer's room for the first time ever in my life without ever being in a writer's room, you know, like I've never been in a writer's room and here I am running one and I didn't know, you know, I, but I just did it. And, but through the process of kind of teaching myself how to do it, I also learned a lot about writing and my own process, which became more structured. Um, before, I'm very much like an emotional sort of writer. Like I have to have things just right. Like every chemical balance has to be right for me to like figure it out. So, you know, you start doing things to try to get yourself there. Like, I don't know, you know, the one, one thing would be 
going for a walk or like going and watching movies or, or, or doing, you know, whatever drugs, like, you know, people do lots of things. Um, so what, but it's only helped me kind of hone my process to where I can kind of turn it on like a click of a button, you know, and I can really kind of, and I think diving into like structure and writing and using, you know, structuring story and stuff is, was what's really helped and changed things. Obviously process changed. Did the shutting down of, you know, Hollywood essentially, at least for a few months, did that in any way impact you or those processes? Yeah, because I had to write. We, uh, I had a crew here in Tulsa. I had, uh, you know, had the show, we were shooting a pilot and then the pandemic happened and we got shut down. So, I mean, literally I got shut down with the pandemic and so the crew had the crew all the crew went back to Atlanta and LA and it was like, man, hopefully I still have a show. I don't know. Like it felt like the worst luck ever to uh, finally have a show. And then like a one in a hundred year pandemic comes out. So that was kind of frustrating, but I'm used to kind of rolling with the punches, I think. So I just kind of kept my eye on the prize and you know, FX uh, basically was like, you know, we want to, they wanted to show that they were committed to the project. And so they actually like, uh, were like, we want to hire you guys to write more scripts. So I spent a lot of time just writing. Um, and then at a certain point that switched into, oh, we're making the pilot again, you know? So um, it affected me because it shut down my shoot for my pilot, but it just really gave me time to practice and write. And, um, you know, it was the first time in my life I felt like a writer because my job is filmmaker and all these other things. So I kind of have always wished like, oh, I wish I was just that writer in a cabin, like just writing and having coffee and whatever, you know, and I got to do that a little bit. And, and I'm, I'm curious, the production was shut down, but you started writing more scripts. Uh, presumably this was, were these more scripts for the, the same projects? It didn't change anything, honestly. It, it just gave me time to write. And I had other projects already that I needed to write. So it gave me time to really kind of like set them up like dominoes and really knock them down and take a structured approach to the creative and, and sort of logistical side of getting these scripts done. I don't know what it is, but like some people have told me that they've had like no creative output during the pandemic. But for me, it was the exact opposite. I mean, I just like switched into high gear and was just like, let's, you know, let's get this done. And it helped distract me from the pandemic. I think like it helped, you know, I have kids too. So that also helped distract me, but it helped me not worry as much because I was diving into these stories that I was writing. So uh, let's uh, let's shift gears here a little bit and start looking a little more at the future. You know, how is 2021 looking comparative to last year? Would you say things are looking up? Or are they about the same? Personally, things are good. I mean, I'm making a show, getting ready to go into production on a show. So last year I was, you know, um, at the beginning of the pandemic, I was facing the end of a show that I, that like all my dreams were coming true and then it was shutting down. So, uh, now I've went through the process of making the pilot and, you know, they picked it up and now I get to make a show. So it's looking up. I don't like saying that though, because, uh, 
you know, knock on wood, you know, like I'm a bit superstitious. So, um, so yeah, I mean, I, I think that the future is bright and it's like, you know, gonna, gonna make some TV, which is really cool. You know, it's like, I went from making very micro budget independent films to being able to make television and, and tell these stories in this long platform, which is pretty amazing. I've just tried to do my part and, you know, support people. And, you know, I gave a lot of people a job on a pilot, you know, here in Oklahoma. Uh, that was really cool. Like there was another level of like excitement because people got to get out of their house and work, you know? Uh, so that was really kind of rewarding. Um, seeing how every, how happy everyone was to kind of feel normal, you know, it's been scary though, you know, like, you know, I've had the odd panic attack about like what's going on and where are we headed? And, um, you know, it's definitely been, there's some darker days that happened. I mean, I was traveling when this all kicked off right before, right when we started hearing about it, I was traveling, I was in New York and then I went to late February, I was in New York and then I went to LA for meetings and I was into March there. Um, and then, you know, it all, like everything sort of got weird and people started not shaking hands and working from home. And I flew home and, um, yeah, it's, it's been a crazy, scary, but rewarding time. You know, it's like, I love, like, I don't know. I've approached filmmaking, like my whole approach to being a filmmaker and artist has always been kind of a punk rock kind of like rebellious approach. Right. So it's like, I'm not, I'm not a type of person that sits around kind of like bitching about what I don't have or what I, what I'm not what opportunity I haven't been given. I know there's opportunities I didn't get as a native artist, but I don't dwell on that. I make it a point to keep forging ahead. And, 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 and this, this rebellious attitude of like, nothing can stop me. And so I just kind of took that into the pandemic and was like, yeah, bring it on. Like, of course, there's a pandemic when I have a TV show. Like, of course, that's going to happen. Like, let's just do this and let's keep doing it. You know, like, it's a, I, having that attitude has always been very helpful to me in an industry that's really tough. I mean, like, look, like, I have an FX show. Not many people, less than 1% of people can say that. You know, I mean, it's such a, like, uh, it's not lost on me how amazing how, what a miracle it is that like, I mean, I am a native from Oklahoma, you know, I'm there because of the trail of tears because the government rounded us up and made us walk to Oklahoma. Like I'm there for, I'm here because of that. And the fact that like a couple of generations later, you know, from a point where my, my, you know, like my family, was a part of the people that had to rebuild the nations and, and, and try to make it in a world that was very unfamiliar to what they had before. And the fact that a couple of generations later, I could be telling stories in the way that I am with, with such an amplified voice and being able to help change narratives. Like it's not lost on me that that's, you know, nothing short of a miracle for me. It's always about forging ahead and, telling these stories that like there was a lot long period where it wasn't cool to be a native artist you know like it wasn't as cool i always thought it was cool but like you know uh in in la it was like going to meetings about native films 
I mean, you could see the blood drain out of people's faces as soon as you said it. You know, no one wanted to. And they're all about money. This industry is about money. Um, so there was a time when I was like, they're never going to make native films. Like, this is, mm-hmm. like, I have to go back to Oklahoma and just make stuff there with people that are interested in it. And that's what I did. And I always kind of thought, like, I bet the industry changes. I bet things change. I just have to, like, keep doing my work. And I couldn't have done anything better uh, because what happened was as soon as I started working on TV, I started meeting with agents and all this stuff. And I had this body of work that I could show. Like I could say, they'd be like, well, who are you? What have you been doing? And I'd be like, well, I've been making films since I was 23 for the last decade, you know? And then I have all this proof and films that have been celebrated in different festivals and traveled all over the world, you know? And, and also just, you know, narrative films and documentary films. I do a mix of things. And, you know, people, every meeting that I would have was people were really excited about how much work I'd done on my own, you know? And it's like, I've heard a lot of people ask me like, where have you been? Like, what, like, like, how have you done all this? You know? And it's like, well, I just stayed in Oklahoma and I did it, you know, like I wasn't, I didn't want to go to LA and, you know, beg for money or like, work my way up slowly i just wanted to tell stories so so uh, you know in hindsight now i feel like i did the right thing uh at the time i didn't know yeah well it sounds like the uh you know the the punk rock that sort of resilience and tough skin really runs uh through the through the blood and the heritage right just i mean telling a little bit of story from your family so yeah i think so um you know i think so we i think it you know i'm half i'm half white as well and you know my white family I'm native on both sides, but my grandma uh, on my dad's side is a white lady. And she, um, I mean, she grew up really poor in Sasakwa, Oklahoma, you know, and uh, had nothing. They had nothing, you know, Um, but they had storytelling. And she was such a great storyteller um, that, you know, it's like, I just come from people that were poor and made it work. People that really know the value of life and like they know what they what's important you know and and it's one of the reasons i stayed here you know it's because i have family here and i didn't want to go somewhere else because i don't know there was no point i'm curious you know you're, you're talking a little about how your work got some attention anything you can share about how you were able to pitch reservation dogs and how that sort of like pickup process went was it a pilot first or series like how would that look like yeah i mean what happened was uh you know like i said i started taking all these meetings and then i pitched a project to hbo and and it was just like a happenstance that i ended up with the rights to this project and a producer that liked me and asked if i would want to pitch it and i said yes pitch that to hbo which i'm not going to say what it is yet but i'm sure you'll know soon but um and it kind of hasn't been announced but not really not by hbo so i won't say anything but it was a really big deal. It was a big book, like a giant book that came out. And I just happened in the right time, right place, met the right producer who wrote, who stayed in touch with me. I'd actually turned down a job that they wanted me to attach myself to. And then I, you know, they were like, you think this is a series? And I was like, yeah. And they're like, you want to pitch it? I'm like, yeah. I'm like, How about HBO? Like, yeah. And they were like, you could, you could Skype in. Cause I was back in Oklahoma. I was like, no, I'll fly out for that. So I flew out and we pitched it and they bought it. And so I started development on that show. Um, so that court, that, that's sort of like, 
kind of like opened the door a bit, you know, where it was like, oh, this guy's got this big book, you know, like uh, people knew what the book was. So it's like, oh, wow, cool. And then, you know, Tyke and I are friends. We're old friends. I mean, we've known each other since we started film. And we just gravitated towards each other, both Native Indigenous people and similar backgrounds and, you know, similar sensibilities and humor. And, you know, we met at Sundance and traveled all over together. We, I've been in, you know, I was with him riding in a this like French car with like hydraulics uh, across New Zealand with him once, you know, like um, we've been everywhere together. And so when I would go to LA, you know, and I never crossed the line of working with him. He was my friend and then we kept it like that, you know, and like I would still be doing that. But one day I went over there, it was, you know, I was in LA and I, we'd always have dinner at his place. And, you know, he just mentioned his deal with FX and asked me if I'd want to pitch something over there. We came up with it that night. Luckily, we'd had we'd had like a lot of projects that were similar. We always kind of joked about how similar different scripts were and stuff. And so we just uh, came up with it that night. And, you know, Tag is busy. So I was like, I'm going to go home and write this tonight. So I went home and I was just like, wrote the outline. Not, not the outline, but like kind of like a pitch sort of summary of what we wanted to do, the story. Sent that to him. Uh, Taika liked it. I figured we wouldn't talk about it for a year, you know, like, or months, whatever. Ha- a week later, you know, FX, my agents were like, what is this project? Like, they're ma- making an offer for, for this project. You know, and with uh, Taika's... Um, producing partner on um what we do in the shadows garrett bosch we ended up like i mean he, he helped make it happen and just like you know with taika and garrett it was just like bam you know and then i went in and we kind of you know they wanted to meet me after that so we met and then we were just kind of off to the races right this you know so well very cool sounds like a yeah. lot of uh, exciting projects ahead i know i'm really excited to to see the pilot and that it looks like it had a yeah. full series order according to disney investor call so yeah. uh, congratulations yeah yeah thank you man. let's get to the fun stuff though I, i've asked you to select uh three movies that helped you get through what was i would say an especially challenging year and i'm really excited to hear what you picked we'll start with your first pick what is the first movie you selected Okay, so let's go through Roma. Roma was like, you know, I'd seen it a year before. Whenever it came out, I saw it in theater. And I was just blown away. Um, it is just the reason why I make films. It, it, give me, it gave me the same feeling that I got when I first saw, like, Jim Jarmusch, Dead Man, or, like, a John Cassavetes film, or, like, a French New Wave film, like films that like really inspired me to make films like Roma gave that to me, you know? And it was like, just like from every detail to this, to the the visuals, to the acting, you know, it's about an indigenous woman. Like it just blew me away. And so I got the um, criterion collection Blu-ray and, you know, poured through that. And it was just one of those films that kind of like, no matter how much I watch it, I find amazing things about it yeah. and it's just something to aspire to for me, you know, like, you know, because it reminds me of the reason why I fell in love with film. It's once I realized that film was a language, like, like it wasn't just pointing to a camera anywhere. Once I fig- figured out that it was a language, that's when I fell in love with film and wanted to do it forever. So it's a film that reminds me of that, you know, so, so only not many films do that to me anymore. But it's all worth it when I get one that does. You know, it's like there will be blood did that to me. Um, 
you know, like uh, even like Inherent Vice or Phantom Thread, like 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 these like auteur films, like they they really do it to me. Like like um, you know, rarely TV does that. Sometimes TV does that. True Detective um, season one, uh, different things like that. Like sometimes I'll get that feeling, but man, Romo just had everything that it had everything, everything about it is the reason why I want to make films. And I don't think I can ever make a film that good. I just don't like, it's a master work to me. Um, and then you watch the documentary about it. And I mean, when the making of makes you cry, like, yeah, it's crazy. Like, I mean, literally in tears, like watching the making of, um, and you know, just the, the links at which he told that story and the research was just blew me away. Man. I just couldn't believe it. So that's yeah. why Roma was on there. Yeah. Well, I, I, I'm glad you mentioned that because I, I, I could be mistaken, but I want to say last year was also the year that Netflix decided, Hey, we're actually going to put our stuff on home video with criterion. I know I've picked up a couple of those uh, releases myself. Yeah. Um, and it, it's, it's really great to see. Cause I know for a lot of folks, it, you, you know, uh, fans of physical media weren't sure if we were going to get those full in-depth documentary type making well, of that's the thing that's the thing is like i have so many people that only want to watch my film make i mean can only watch they don't they're not onliners you know like like my film miko like they're people are always asking me for the dvd um and i never i don't know what to do you know yeah i would love it if criterion would get miko it'd be great <laughs> Just uh, give it a couple of years. I, I think they might come around to you. Yeah. They, they got a whole streaming channel yeah. now. The opportunity is still there. Yeah, so, uh, exactly. Well, and I'm curious though, you mean, you know, I, I did find it interesting that you picked an uh, Alfonso Cuarón movie. Uh, like, do you find, is that a director you tend to gravitate towards? Are you a big fan of his work? I mean, I'm a fan. I'm not like a giant fan. Like I would never put any of his other films in my like top 10. Aroma killed me. It just like slayed me in my theater seat. Um, but I'm a fan of his films. You know, Itumamatambien was great, and like, you know, I think that um, he's a great filmmaker. But this one was the one for me, for sure. Well, let's uh, let's move on to the, the second film. Uh, what what is another one of your selections for us today? Uh, eight and a half was a selection that I did. Guido, Guido, dove corri, disgraziato? Federico Fellini's Eight and a Half, and it's and the reason I picked it is because it really pulled me out of a funk of writing. I was right, I'm writing a feature that's in development right now, and it pulled me out of this funk. I mean, it's because my the show the the feature that I'm writing is big. And it's kind of wild and crazy. And I was like, I need something to inspire me, you know? And I never finished. I never got past like 10 minutes of eight and a half. It was just one of those like college, you know, you knew you should watch it. And I just never did. It was like, I just couldn't get into it. Um, but then watching it as an older man, all of a sudden I just like melted into it. And I was like fully on board for the whole ride. I was like, so immersed in that story and the visuals and and how he made that film and it really inspired the work that i was doing 
you know so so it was like the time first time i ever watched it yeah um and it just really kind of changed uh like i just i don't know i loved it i loved everything about it well, I know I'm, I'm, I share a similar experience there. Uh, you know, you, you, you turn it on for 10 minutes in college because you're like, well, if I want to understand uh, cinema, I, I've yeah. got to see this movie. But no, I think that's like uh, that Citizen Kane. You know? Yeah, right. Yeah, no, yeah. I, I think that's a great pick, though, because uh, dealing with the idea of like heightened reality, dream states and things, yeah. uh, I mean, uh, obviously uh, has been a creative source for a lot of, of people. I guess the big question for you with eight and a half is, do you think this is going to be a movie you return to down the road for creative inspiration yeah. or is it a one-time watcher? No, I'll go back. I mean, like just talking about it right now, I want to watch it again, you know? So uh, I do believe that I'll go back to it for sure. Very cool. Well, nothing like, uh, I, I, I like the contrast here. We've got uh, Roma, which is a very historical drama that's v- very attention to detail on actual history uh, of country, you know, very real world oriented. You've got eight and a half, which is sort of uh, dream state, escape from reality yeah. sort of thing. So uh, let's take us home here with the third pick. What was the third movie you picked? Yeah, the third one was a film kind of similar that like I'd never watched it, but it was something that I wanted to watch forever. And I'd actually had the Blu-ray for a while, like a couple of years. And it was like pandemic time, like uh, I'm going to eat an edible and I'm going to watch this movie. The Long Goodbye. There's a long goodbye. Your name, Marlo? No, my name is Sidney uh, Jenkins. Come on, let's go inside, Marlo. We want to talk to you. Oh, is this where I'm supposed to say, what is all this about? And he says, uh, shut up, I asked the question. Yeah, yeah, that's right. <laughs> And it happens every day. Right profile. Sit down. What the hell are you doing here? That's right. I'm getting ready to sing Swanee. Swanee. How I love you. How I love you. When some passerby. I love Altman anyway, but like to watch this story, I realize that there's a lot of films that I even love that like took from that story and. I don't know, it just had this tone that I loved. And I just felt like I was in Robert Altman's lap. And it's like he's taken me around through his world that he makes films in. And it just, I just like could sit, and maybe that was edible help, but like I could just sit back and glide through that movie. And it was really, it was, I was actually watching that to inspire the same script that I watched the Fellini project film for. The Fellini film helped me with that project i think the altman film hurt me for that project because i started trying to just like steal from him Mm -hmm. and the way that i'd watched it i watched the long goodbye first and then i watched eight and a half late like a couple few days later and when i watched the long goodbye i was just like trying to be inspired but i just ended up like being so infected by his film that I started ripping them off unconsciously, like kind of ripping them off. And all of a sudden, like this pro- this film that I was writing, it's not like a hard-boiled detective or soft-boiled detective story at all, but it became one. And like, I had all these similarities to The Long Goodbye. So, so it kind of hurt me in my writing because it was so good. And it just like, I, I felt it so much. It was great. I just like really enjoyed that. Right. So, I mean, this is a, a triple threat here. I, I mean, Roma, the long goodbye and then eight and a half. I, you know, it, I'm thinking if, if you if you watched eight and a half, that does seem sort of like uh, 
I, I do like that as the, the third piece there because, again, the escapist reality is sort of like trending further and further away um, from yeah. the, the grounded world we're in, which I know in 2020 was uh, pretty rough for a lot of folks. So um, totally. can I give you a runner up? Yeah, absolutely. To, yeah. So my runner up was uh, Mickey Reese's film, uh, Climate of the Hunter. that him? That's him. I have a dim half-remembrance of long, anxious times of waiting and fearing. I'm afraid we are all alone, my dear. You're not alone. I really love that movie. You know, like, I... He sent me a link. I always say, I always tell him, I was jokingly, uh, I discovered him because I made a documentary about him, a short documentary, like 10 years ago, almost eight years ago, something like that. Cause I just heard about Mickey Reese and he was like this guy that was making like, he made like 20 films or something by the time I found out. Crazy amount of films. Yeah. So I was like, I'm going to go, I was working for this land press. I did a short documentary on him and his crew, which is pretty fun. You can watch it on YouTube. He sent me a link to Climb of the Hunter. Man, I was just, I was really blown away with just how Mickey is able to put his voice in it. You know, like, like that is Mickey and I could feel it and nothing felt off to me about that film. Like I just was in it. Like I was in it for the ride and it was like uh, really interesting, really fun. Yeah, you know, I, I I'm glad you brought up Mickey. He is uh, another one of uh, Oklahoma Oklahoma's gem when it comes to filmmaking. Because yeah. uh, a, I mean, you mentioned he he makes a lot of movies really fast. But the thing that's interesting I, I, that I've really grown to appreciate him is that even though he has clear influences from a lot of filmmakers and stories and films that he admires. I, it, it really does always feel like his movie. I never question. He's, yeah. it, it's very clear, even when he's drawing from whether, uh, you know, whether you're talking about like some sort of uh, genre film, a lot of seventies vibes and a lot of his movies. Yeah. Um, I, but I'm never like confused or feel like he's ripping it off. He's always doing something really unique and interesting. That's a, that's a great recommend. By the time, like now that he's onto these last couple of films, it feels like he's really found that, that balance, you know, feels really good. Yeah. Yeah. So uh, that's a uh, climate of the hunter, which uh, I believe actually just hit video on demand if you're listening. So check right. it out. Sterling, it's been really great just talking to you a bit about your creative process the, the year you've had. Uh, where can people keep up with you and your work uh, online? I have a website, but there's not like a lot, but hopefully that'll be updated more. Um, but I also Instagram is my that's the spot to find me. Um, and it's just Sterling Harjo. It's easy. No G on my name. Nice and easy. I like that. Um, yeah. And of course, uh, you know, we talked a little bit about, uh, you know, reservation dogs coming up. It sounds like you've got other projects in the pipeline. Is there anything else you'd like to say to listeners today, either about the films you chose or how they can support your upcoming projects? Um, you know, I mean, mm, yeah, I mean, just watch the shows when they come out. Um, I think like, you know, uh, I have a podcast called the cuts with Sterling Harjo that, uh, I kind of took the year off last year from doing because of all the TV work, but um, I'm going to, the next episode's coming out soon. So I'm gonna kick that back off again and try to stay up with it more. Sterling, like I said, it's been really great talking to you today. Thanks so much for joining us on the cinematic schematic. Yeah, man. Thanks so much for having me. 
Thank you for tuning into the second part of our ongoing series, Three Films That Got You Through the 2020 Pandemic, with special guest Sterling Harjo. Make sure to stay tuned to hear who we'll be talking to next week. One thing I, I want to note here before we close the show, if you enjoyed today's conversation with Sterling and you'd like to participate in this series and be heard, please consider sending in your three films that got you through the pandemic to our email address, thecinematropolis at gmail.com. Send us your picks to have a chance to have them read on the show. The best way you can support the show is by rating the podcast and subscribing on your preferred podcast app. You can also follow all of our work on The Cinematropolis by following us on Twitter at The Cinematrop or on Facebook. You can also find more of my work by following me on Twitter at C Masters Talk. That is letter C Masters Talk. Join me next week when we sit down with Good Trash Media's Arthur Gordon and Dalton Stewart. We'll talk with these two Good Trash Genre Cast hosts about the three films that got them through the pandemic, as well as how the pandemic impacted the film analysis podcast production process. Thank you so much for joining us today. Catch you again next time.